Happy Hauntings Horror Fans and welcome back to Megan's Murder Movies and Happy 2024. Sorry if I sound a little um under the weather. I've got a little bit of a head cold, so I'm hoping I don't sound too nasally. I've put off recording the last like three days in hopes that my voice will get back to normal a little bit um, so that I'm not sounding too nasty on the podcast um but welcome to 2024 i hope everyone had a safe and um cozy holiday season uh sorry for the long hiatus um i took quite a bit of a break i think i i don't even remember the last episode i posted um if i had talked about this or not but long story short my partner and i broke up i took a couple months to resituate my brain and get things sorted um back with a podcast this year hopefully gonna be going strong with it um planning on doing four weeks on two weeks off like i did uh, last year that was working really well for me was giving me plenty of time to get stuff pre-sorted um if i was going to be on vacation or out of town and then also like if i were to get sick gives me plenty of um kind of run time to have some stuff backlogged um so that i'm i'm good to go um but as the title says we are going to be jumping in with scream three we kicked off first year the podcast strong with scream last year we started with scream two for the year so we're keeping in the tradition of starting with scream however um if you've been following what's been going on with the with the scream franchise what the hell just absolute dumpster fire like fuck spyglass and in this house we stand melissa barrera uh what a bummer to see what this has all come out to um at point of filming this basically they have nothing um they fired melissa barrera jenna ortega left the director left um no yeah Courtney and Neve um, supposedly have said they have no interest in like moving forward and coming back with their characters due to kind of everything that Spyglass is doing um, and has come under fire. Spyglass, I guess, tried to meet with Melissa Barrera to like, you know, see if they could come to terms with things after they faced backlash. And she was basically like, nah, fuck you guys, which totally valid, like absolutely ridiculous. Um, so yeah, I contemplated not doing a scream but I figure Scream 3 came out long enough ago, um, and yeah, I just want to keep up that tradition, and Scream is my favorite franchise, like, and I'm so sad that this is what everything is coming to, um, and if that's how we end it with Scream 6, if that's how we end it, that's fine with me. We don't need another one, just let it let it go peacefully at this point is where i'm at with everything um let's see what do we have horror news wise um night swim is supposed to come out i think this week um that one looks pretty good movies i'm most excited for for 2024 definitely nosferatu and the new jordan peele movie which we know nothing about but those don't come out until this christmas um and that's where i planned on spending christmas next year and apologies in advance for anybody who works at movie theaters but i live the state i'm currently living in i don't have any family close to me at all um so like i would much rather spend the holidays at the movie theater doing a double feature of nosferatu with bill skarsgård and whatever jordan peele's doing um pumped so excited like it's January and I cannot wait for Christmas, which feels so weird to say because of those two films. Um, God, I know we have a bunch of others. I Oh, Maxine is supposed to come out 
this year. I'm super pumped about that. Absolutely love X, love Pearl. That's going to be great. Uh, Quiet Place Day One, I think, comes out in the spring. Very, very excited about that. We're getting the Radio Silence Monster Thriller, I think, comes out in like April or May. Um, and those, of course, the people who did Ready or Not, Scream, and then Scream 6. Um, they're doing a new monster thriller with um, in connection with Universal Pictures. And Melissa Barrera is supposed to be in that, along with like Dan Stevens, I think. Um, and Angus Cloud was supposed to be in that as well. And so I think there's going to be scenes from like his scenes are still supposed to be in it, if I'm not mistaken. I think is what I've heard that he filmed enough that he will be in it. But I'm not totally sure. Um, I think we're getting like another Silent Hill um we're getting another like m night Shyamalan movie i think in like early summer that kind of seems to be um the vibe with those which i'm excited for i'm trying to think what else i've heard of um oh we're getting another alien of course beetlejuice will come out in the fall i think we might be getting smile question mark but i don't know if that would be this year um and then i think oh the crow might be this year as well but i'm not totally positive about that i know they're doing a remake with bill skarsgård i think is who it is um so that would be pretty cool again maxine i'm super excited for Oh, and I think that the Strangers trilogy is set to come out. The first one is set to come out this year. They're doing a new trilogy for The Strangers, which is one of my favorites, and I'm super pumped about that. And I think it's got um, Madeline Pesch from, I think that's how you pronounce her last name, from Riverdale is supposed to be in it. Um, really excited for that. Oh, and then, of course, how can you forget Terrifier 3? Um, pumped about that love the terrifier movies so yeah um as just a whole i think that this should hopefully be a pretty good year for horror i'm really pumped about it i'm excited to go to the movies hopefully a lot more this year um, i feel like i did pretty good last year but definitely definitely want to spend more time at the cinema and yeah i think that those are kind of the big news horror wise that i have news on my end i don't know if i've talked about it on the pod since i've had the hiatus but i did uh i did start a podcast with my um old college roommates turned best friends it's called and we were roommates i'll link that in the show notes if you're interested it's very much like comedy slice of life just us talking about our adventures and our lives together um as long distance best friends um we recently over it was september no it was yeah september we went to las vegas and saw the jonas brothers in concert which was super fun um we try to get together a couple times a year so yeah the podcast is just a way for us to kind of stay in touch with one another and share our story so if you're interested in that that's on spotify um and i'll link that in the show notes and yeah i think that that's all so without further ado let us jump into scream three um with a summary so what was supposed to be the last installment in the scream trilogy set in hollywood where stab three is being shot with unfortunately though a killer decides to start murdering the cast members in the order that they are supposed to die in stab three and this of course is just a larger ploy to get sydney prescott out of hiding um because of course that's who ghostface is wanting this is currently streaming on max um i have this on dvd though so that's where 
where I did my my watching. And Rotten Tomatoes, uh, this one is, I think, our lowest scored scream, if I'm thinking correctly. Um, critics gave it a 41. Audience gave it a 38. This one, while it's not my favorite, there are such gems in this, um, specifically with some of the lines and how they did, like, the. I feel like the casting of the characters... Um, like Jennifer is a character in the film who plays Gail in Stab. The two of them together, the two Gales basically are just immaculate. Absolutely love them. So without further ado, let's jump into a cast breakdown. A couple of these players we've seen before of course we're going to start with david arquette who plays dewey american actor former professional wrestler he's known for his role of dewey in the scream franchise he won a teen choice award for that and won two blockbuster entertainment awards for playing dewey as a professional wrestler he is best remembered for his widely panned 2000 stint in world championship of wrestling where he won the wcw world heavyweight championship and headlined the slamboree pay-per-view event he later received praise for his work in the independent wrestling circuit Next, we'll move on to Neve Campbell, who plays Cindy Prescott, and she's known for her work in the drama and horror genres, and of course is known as the quite literally the Scream Queen, since her franchise is Scream. She achieved success in films in the neo-noir thriller Wild Things, the drama 45, the crime films Drowning Mona. She was in Panic, The Last Call, Company, When Will I Be Loved. She was in the comedies Churchill, The Hollywood Years, and Relative Strangers, and the romantic drama Closing the Ring. Last Call won her the Prism Award for Best Performer in a TV Film slash Miniseries. She went on to start in the comedy drama Walter, the action film skyscraper and the drama castle in the ground and then of course the musical drama clouds in 2020 then we have courtney cox who plays gail weathers and of course she is known for playing monica geller in friends and um is also widely known for her role as gail weathers in the screen franchise now we'll move on to some of our newer players. Um, one of my favorite characters is Detective Mark Kincaid, who is played by Patrick Dempsey. I'm not a Grey's Anatomy girly, but I do love Patrick Dempsey. Um, he's an American actor and racing driver, best known for his role as neurosurgeon Derek McDreamy Shepard in Grey's Anatomy. He's also known for being the leading man in many romantic films, including Enchanted. Um, he was just recently People's Sexiest Man Alive for the first time, so congrats, Dempsey. He started his career acting in films such as Can't Buy Me Love, Lover Boy, Sweet Home Alabama, Maid of Honor, which is one of my absolute favorite, like, romancy movies, which I don't watch very many of, but Maid of Honor is one of my favorites. Uh, he was in Valentine's Day, Bridget Jones' Baby, Outbreak, Transformers, Dark of the Moon, Thanksgiving, Ferrari, Flypaper, The Art of Racing in the Rain. Just, of course, tons and tons of credits for Mr. Dempsey. Then we'll move on to Roman Bridgers, who is the director of Stab 3, and he's played by Scott Foley. Scott's an American actor known for his roles in television, such as The Unit, Scrubs, Felicity, and Scandal, which is what I like know him from outside of being roman bridgers and then of course he has guest starred in Grey's anatomy dawson's creek and house then we have the character of john milton who is a producer on stab and like a studio executive for sunrise studios and john milton is played by lance henriksen 
Lance is an American actor known for his work in various science fiction, action, and horror films. Um, he was in the Alien film franchise. He played Frank Black in the Fox television series Millennium from 1996 to 1999. He was also in the X-Files. He's done extensive voice work um he did voice work in tarzan he voiced general shepherd in call of duty modern warfare 2 he also voiced fleet admiral stephen hackett in biowars mass effect video game trilogy he appeared in terminator he's ed harley in Pumpkinhead, which i really wanted to do for the podcast last year and then i like started it and then i just didn't i couldn't finish it so this year Pumpkinhead will be done then we have the character of tom who is playing dewey in stab and tom is played by matt keesler is an American, a retired American actor and practicing certified physician's assistant. And this is wild when I was doing research on this. He's an instructor of urology at the Oregon Health and Science University School of Medicine. That is the university that I went to. I went to the University of Oregon and he's an instructor at the University of Oregon. I was completely shocked. I was so excited. It's one of those like six degrees of Kevin Bacon kind of thing. And I was like, how did I not know this? Like, Tom from Scream 3 is an instructor. Freaking absolutely wild. Okay, then we have the role of Sarah Darling, who is another cast member in Stab. She's not playing any of our like known players though. And Sarah is played by Jenny McCarthy. Jenny's an American actress, model, and television personality. She began her career in 1993 as a nude model for Playboy magazine and was later named their Playmate of the Year. McCarthy then had a television and film acting career beginning as a co-host on the MTV game show Singled Out and afterwards starring in the sitcom Jenny, which ran from 1997 to 1993. She has appeared in films Scream 3, Dirty Love, John Tucker Must Die, and Santa Baby. In 2023, she hosted her own television talk show, The Jenny McCarthy Show, and became a co-host of the ABC talk show, The View, until 2014. Um, since 2019, she has been a judge on The Masked Singer, which I know is a very popular Next, we have the role of Angelina Tyler, who is playing Sydney Prescott in Stab 3. And Angelina is played by Emily Mortimer. Emily is a British actress and filmmaker. She began acting in stage productions and has since appeared in several films and television roles. In 2003, she won an Independent Spirit Award for her performance in Lovely and Amazing. She's also known for playing Mackenzie McHale on the HBO series The Newsroom from 2012 to 2014. She created and wrote the series Doll and M, which ran from 2014 to 2015 and wrote and directed the miniseries The Pursuit of Love in 2021, the latter of which earned her a nomination for the British Academy Television Award for Best Supporting Actress. She provided the voice actress of Sophie in the English-language version of Howl's Moving Castle. Of course, starred in Scream 3. She was in Match Point, The Pink Panther, Pink Panther 2, Lars and the Real Girl, Chaos Theory, Harry Brown, Shutter Island, Cars 2, Hugo, Mary Poppins Returns, and Relic. And next we have probably one of my favorite characters, Jennifer, who, as I said, is playing Gail Weathers in Stab 3. And Jennifer is played by Parker Posey. Parker's an American actress and was labeled queen of the indies for starring in a succession of independent productions throughout the 90s, such as Party Girl, The Doom Generation, Kicking and Screaming, 
Day Trippers, The House of Yes, and Clock Watchers. She is the recipient of a Golden Globe Award nomination, a Satellite Award nomination, and two Independent Spirit Award nominations. She continued work in independent features during the 2000s, with credits including Faye Grimm and Broken English. Her mainstream film appearances include You've Got Mail, Scream 3, Josie and the Pussycats, The Sweetest Thing, Blade Trinity, Superman Returns, Grace of Monaco, Cafe Society, and Bo is Afraid. She frequently works with Christopher Guest and has appeared in several of his documentaries, such as Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show, A Mighty Wind, and For Your Consideration. Outside of film, she has guest starred in The Good Wife. Um, she played Dr. Smith on Netflix Lost in Space and appeared as Frida Black in the HBO Max miniseries The Staircase. Her stage credits include Taller Than a Dwarf and The Realistic Joneses. She also released a memoir in 2018. Next, we have the role of Tyson, uh, who is another character in Stab 3, and he's played by Dion Richmond. Dion's an American actor from New York City who is best known for his reoccurring roles as Kenny on the NBC sitcom The Cosby Show and Jordan Bennett on the sitcom Sister Sister. And he's been nominated for two Young Artist Awards, in which he won one of them in 1989. Next, we have the role of Christine, who is Cotton Weary's girlfriend at the beginning of the film. And Christine is played by Kelly Rutherford. She's an American actress. She's known for her television roles as Sam Whitmore in the soap opera Generations and as Megan Lewis on the Fox primetime soap opera Melrose Place and as Lily Vanderwood on the CW series Gossip Girl. Next, we have the role of Cotton Weary, who we've talked about before um, in relation to Scream, and he's played by Liv Schreiber. He's an American actor, director, and producer. He became known in the late 90s and early 2000s for appearing in several independent films and later mainstream Hollywood films, including the first three Scream horror films, including the Scream trilogy. He was also in Ransom, Phantoms, The Hurricane, Kate and Leopold, The Sum of All Fears, The Manchurian Candidate, The Omen, Defiance, X-Men Origins Wolverine, Taking Woodstock, Salt, Goon, Pawn Sacrifice, Spotlight, The Fifth Wave, and The French Dispatch. He's also done voice animation such as My Little Pony the Movie, Isle of Dogs, and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Next we have a celebrity bodyguard Stephen Stone who is Jennifer's bodyguard in the film and he's played by Patrick Warburton. Uh, As an American actor and producer on television he's played David in Seinfeld, the title character on The Tick, Jeb on Less Than Perfect, Jeff in Rules of Engagement, and Lemony Snicket on a series of unfortunate events. He's like the narrator. His voice acting roles include Joe Swanson in Family Guy, Kronk in The Emperor's New Groove, Buzz Lightyear in Buzz Lightyear Starkman, Brock Samson in The Venture Bros, and the audiobook The Eye of the Bedlam Bride by Matt Damon. He voices the father of the main character, Carl. Of course, he is just... His voice is iconic. And speaking of iconic voices, we have Roger L. Jackson, who, of course, is the voice of Ghostface, and he's known for voicing Ghostface and known for voicing Mojo Jojo in the Powerpuff Girls, which is one of my favorite, like, little fun facts to tell people, because so many people don't know that he also does Mojo Jojo. So if I ever meet people who, like, obviously haven't listened to the podcast or anything, and we're talking about Scream, I'm like, did you know? And people always get so excited. It's one of my favorite little fun facts to tell people. Um, we have two more characters to talk about before we get into our fun facts. So Wallace is Detective 
Kincaid's partner. And Wallace is played by Josh Pius. He's appeared in Hollywood films, including Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as Raphael, Music of the Heart, Scream 3, and Runs in the Family, Phone Booth, Little Manhattan, and Find Me Guilty. He played assistant M.E. Borak in 15 episodes of the series Law and Order between 1990 and 2002. He also played the Spanish teacher in the film Assassination of a High School President, and he has had a reoccurring role as an obnoxious movie producer on the American crime drama series Ray Donovan. Um, and then he also appeared as a lawyer in Two Broke Girls. And the last person we're going to talk about is Martha Meeks, who is Randy Meeks' sister. We meet her in Scream 3. She comes back later in the franchise, which was so fun. Um, and she is played by Heather Matarazzo. Heather's an American actress known for playing Lily Moskowitz in The Princess Diaries and The Princess Diaries 2. Martha Meeks in Scream 3, the Scream that came out in 2022. Matarazzo made her film debut at age 12 in Welcome to the Dollhouse, earning an Independent Spirit Award for her portrayal of Don Weiner. Her other credits include The Devil's Advocate, All I Want to Do, 54, Sorority Boys, Saved, Hostel Part 2, and Sisters. Outside of film, she portrayed Heather Wiseman on the CBS series Now and Again and had a reoccurring role on Roseanne, X's and O's, and The L Word. On stage, she appeared in the 2021-2022 Broadway revival of The Woman. And that is our cast breakdown. Now we can jump into our fun facts. Throughout the film, we can see Sydney wearing the Greek letters around her neck that were given to her by her boyfriend, Derek, in Scream 2, shortly before he was killed. Patrick Dempsey was actually hired the day before shooting, and he had one night to learn a couple of really dialogue-heavy scenes. So Kevin Williamson was unable to return to his writing duties due to scheduling conflicts with Dawson's Creek, the faculty, and Halloween H2O. Um, Mr. Williamson is a busy man, and he was also directing Teaching Miss Tingle. He did write an outline of the film, but Aaron Kruger, who was then brought on to do the writing, basically ignored the outline. Um, he wrote most of his script on the fly with pages usually completed the day they were supposed to be filmed and the characters bore so little resemblance to the appearances in their prior films that Wes Craven actually had to kind of step in and help with rewrites and kind of guide Aaron through the process um, because he was he was fully going for it but so much of it was like not helpful um, and essentially the, the whole film had to be rewritten due to the Columbine massacre. Um, essentially they had planned to bring Stu's character back and have him be masterminding a bunch of, um, deaths at a high school, like from jail, kind of doing, um, what we end up seeing in the film where there's like a, a manipulator who's manipulating like young people um to go out and commit these murders but because of columbine they really wanted to steer away from the gore and deaths happening at a high school um so they changed it to having stab 3b in production and kind of that whole thing um because they didn't want the target to be teenagers after such a a large thing um, that kind of rocked, you know, the American society, which still rocks the society to this day because we can't get freaking gun regulations and we're still seeing hundreds and hundreds of school shootings per year. Absolutely bonkers. However, 
we will move on. Otherwise, this podcast will get very off track. Um, both Christopher Walken and Wes Craven were considered for the role of John Milton. I think Christopher Walken would have been really fun to see as John Milton, just with like some of the line delivery and stuff. Um, but I think Lance did a great job. The film's tagline is the most terrifying scream is always the last. And of course, this film was supposed to be the last installment um, and is in the initial like trilogy. Cindy was written earlier drafts of the script to be experiencing suicidal ideation um, in addition to suffering nightmares and PTSD from the events of Scream 1 and 2. Marco Beltrami employed seven orchestras to aid in scoring the extensive orchestral company featured in the film's score. He experimented with new styles of sound production by recording instruments in abnormal circumstances, such as inserting objects into a piano and recording at various velocities to create distorted, unnatural sound and modifying the results electronically. And this, this soundtrack definitely has uh, a different vibe than the first two. On August 15th, 2023, a black and white VHS copy of a 1999 assembly cut was leaked online. As a runtime of two hours and 22 minutes, the structure of the cut's largely identical to the finished film, but the differences come from reshoots that occurred. Cotton's opening call is much longer, but his encounter with Ghostface at his home is shorter than in the final film. Randy's tape is also much longer with different lines and jokes added. A new scene shows Ghostface downloading voices onto a disc that's inserted into like the voice box modulator thing, and the ending is much shorter, with less of a fight between Cindy and the killer, um, with her kind of quickly overcoming the killer in the end. The film was shot in such secrecy that the cast only saw their parts of the script the previous night, and some scenes would stop in the middle to keep the killer's identity a secret. Uh, this is also the first Scream movie to not feature Ghostface saying, Hello, Sydney." Um, so I know we talked about briefly that they kind of really rewrote what they were hoping and, and originally planning for the third installment um, due to the Columbine Massacre, but they also really wanted to tone down the on-screen violence. So this film only used 10 gallons of fake blood in contrast with the 30 gallons used on Scream 2 and the 50 gallons used in Scream 1. So at around one hour and 45 minutes, when Cindy jumps over the bar and stabs the killer in the back with an ice pick, she missed the pad that she was supposed to hit and actually hit flesh. And so Scott Foley's scream is genuine. Uh, we have a cameo from Carrie Fisher, uh, which is it just always makes me smile when I see it. And she actually uh, helped write some of rewrite some of her lines for the scene that she's in with gail and jennifer um and i think that the whole scene is, is so good and so then according to commentary by director wes craven angelina tyler was supposed to be the second killer and roman bridger's girlfriend in the film she was also going to be an ex-classmate of sydney's but the producers didn't like the idea as this was part of an incestuous fantasy subplot with roman who like because Angelina's playing Sydney in the film, and then like if she's Roman's girlfriend, it's just a it's just a little too odd. Um, and the fact that spoiler alert, Roman and Sydney are sib like half siblings. They were they they share the same mother. Um, so they decided to not do that. And also after Columbine, they wanted to steer away from having two killers. Um, like I mentioned with jamie kennedy's uh little video as randy that we see in the film they actually had over two hours of footage for it that they then pieced together it's only like a 30 minute scene in the film um, but they shot a lot for that 
So Liv Schreiber actually came up with the idea of having his character Cottonweary be killed off in the opening scene. Um, his death scene was constantly changing, and it sounds like three or four versions of it were filmed, and this meant that the opening driving scene had to be reshot to account for the continuity changes, which is wild because that the shot of him driving like the wrong way down the road and all that would have been terrifying to do once, let alone to have to do it a bunch of different times. Uh, some versions of the script had Mark Kincaid getting killed in the finale, which I'm so happy that they didn't do because it is canon, if you're unfamiliar with Scream, that Detective Mark Kincaid and Sidney Prescott go on to like get married and have children together. Um, and I think that that's lovely. And I, I love Mark Kincaid. Uh, this is the only film to feature a single ghostface killer. This was highly contested issue with fans and critics as only having one ghostface lessened any potential rewatch value as now the audience will know who's killing the victims in each death scene with just one killer. Um, again, like I said, that wasn't the original intention though. They had Angelina Tyler, um, but they, for multiple reasons, decided to cut that aspect of, of the film. Um, so rewatching this film now seems really interesting, especially after the Me Too movement took off um, and series producer Harvey Weinstein was exposed as a sexual predator who was subsequently fired from his own company. Several scenes in this film refer to casting couch phenomenon and Hollywood film producers exchanging sexual favors in order to give actors movie roles. And we learn that this happens with Maureen Prescott having been a victim of this systematic gang rape by the Hollywood elite. And we also find out that Bianca Burnett, who is Carrie Fisher's character in this, says that she lost out to playing Princess Leia because she went sleep with George Lucas. We also find out in the film that Angelina revealed that she slept with John Milton to get the role as Sydney in Stab 3. So it's this whole kind of cycle. And even John Milton has a whole line where he's like, you know, Maureen Prescott knew what she was doing when she would show up to those parties. Like, you know, I, we nobody ever forced her to do anything. Like she knew exactly what was expected of her. Like that kind of vibe, very icky. Um, so it's very interesting to watch this movie now, especially after all of this has come out. And like this movie falling under like the Weinstein company um, there's a lot of fun facts that pertain to like the Weinsteins visiting the set like the brothers and having like wanting to put input and having ideas and all of this stuff um, and I don't want to give them any credit for anything so I took those fun facts out not that there were many and not that any were super exciting um, so it wasn't we're not just missing anything um, but it's very interesting those parallels this is also the first scream series where sydney never actually knew or met the killer prior to the ending um she never shared scenes with roman before the reveal um this of course the, mm, sticking to like original trilogy ideas not talking about scream four or five or six so then as roman is supposed to be the only killer in the film all the murders are his doing since there are nine supposed victims he would have the highest kill count of all the ghostface killers however if going by the theory that angelina is his accomplice then it's still possible to deduce which of the two committed which murders and which one was active so i think that this is really fun i'm going to kind of go through um the theories for who did which killings if we're talking about two killers so in the first deaths of Cotton Weary and his girlfriend Christine, in the final cut, it's very obvious Roman killed them both, as the new opening scene is a reshoot that was meant to firmly establish one killer. In the alternate opening, it's more apparent that it was two killers, as one killer was stalking to Cotton on the phone, 
And then when he's ambushed by the one in the closet, there's no phone in the hand, even though, like, they're talking. So Angelina likely killed Christine and used her voice on the phone while Roman killed Cotton. Uh, the murder of Sarah Darling, Roman calling her would be Angelina's cue to attack her and kill her. Um, so that one would go to Angelina. Sydney's phone call, Roman, prior to the scene, had been taken into police custody for questioning, so it made it unlikely that he called Sydney with Maureen's voice to scare her, and Angelina must have made the call. Um, so that's not a death, but a phone call. Uh, Stephen Stone's phone call and death. So Ghostface calls Stephen and uses Dewey's voice to distract him long enough to sneak up on it and kill him. The Ghostface who attacks literally in the middle of the call has no phone, meaning Angelina most likely made the call while Roman killed him. Because there's a pretty, not um, intense fight scene, but Stephen Stone's a, a larger guy. Um, and the Ghostface going up against him seems you know similar like size and build i feel like it would be very obvious if it was angelina um you know in logistic purposes that makes the most sense um tom prince's death angelina turned on the gas stove since she was at the party that was going on at jennifer's house um so you could say that both of them Angelina set the trap. Roman set the bait. Um, you know, Roman's probably sending the script pages via set fax machine. So we can say that um, the house party is very different. I would say it's more likely that Roman killed Tyson um, at the house party. Like if we had to differentiate between who would maybe have done, like who maybe had killed Tyson. Um, I also, and then of course, because they went away with the two killer angelina does end up dying at the end um and then sydney's attack on the stab three set so this scene makes it very obvious that there's two killers as ghostface keeps popping out of like all these different nooks and crannies which is very even if they knew the set like the back of their hand and they knew all these different ways to get through it seems so impossible for them to be like popping up as quickly as they are like at one point sydney runs into what's a version of her house running away from ghostface and like shuts and locks the door and then it mimics in the first film when she gets the phone call and she goes outside to the front porch and she's like you know i call your bluff blah 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 and she thinks she's talking to randy but she's not and then she goes in the house she locks the door and then ghostface comes out of the closet and that same exact scene almost happens in scream three where she's running from Ghostface. she runs into the set that is like what is her house locks the door and then Ghostface comes out of that closet and like chases her up the stairs um so that one is very interesting uh and so angela being the second killer would reduce roman's kill count to seven or possibly even lower if he didn't actually kill angelina and she like maybe only faked her death or whatever um so yeah like i said there's a nine person body count christine cotton sarah stephen tom tyson jennifer john and milton or sorry john and roman angelina's death has been disputed by many people including wes craven she's omitted from the body count list and the booklet included with the final screen trilogy box set dvd her death scene was supposed to be a fake out before the reveal is that she's the other killer which is why her body disappears since the reveal was cut from the film whether or not she actually died was and was betrayed by roman or simply faked her death is currently unknown 
And yeah, those are our fun facts for Scream 3. And now it's time for our scene-by-scene breakdown. We open with an overhead shot of the Hollywood sign. It's dark. We're seeing this view from a helicopter. And there's a ton of traffic on the freeway. And we're hearing this, like, news report that there's lots of accidents. So seek alternative routes. Bumper to bumper. You're not going anywhere fast. But again, that's California in general. You're not going anywhere fast if you're on the freeway. And we cut to this car, and we see that Cotton Weary is driving. He's talking on the phone with, I'm assuming, his agent, and he's upset. He's like, I'm supposed to be doing this cameo in some slasher movie, but he's like, I either need to be paid more, or they need to actually, like, give me a decent part, like, with better lines and more thought-out scenes. He's like, this is ridiculous. He's also talking about some other movie that he's up for, and he's curious, you know, to hear if they've heard anything about that. But at this point, his cell phone rings and he was on like his car phone so he puts his agent on hold picks up the cell phone and it's this woman and she realizes she has the wrong number and then she realizes that she recognizes cotton's voice and she's like oh my gosh like i'm a huge fan we find out that cotton has a talk show that he hosts and she's like yeah you know i'm you know 100 your fan because i think the talk show is called like 100 cotton and so he's like oh are you a, a fan of 100 cotton she's like 110 so they're like kind of being flirty and then he tells the woman you know hold on a second I'm on the other line like let me hang up and you know I'll come back so he gets on the phone with his agent he's like I've got someone on the other line I gotta go and then when he gets back on the phone he continues flirting with this woman and then Ghostface comes on the line and is like you know that's kind of not cool since you have a girlfriend like how would your girlfriend feel about you saying these things and I'm standing outside the bathroom and she's in the shower and so Ghostface is like egging Cotton on And then we can hear Cotton's girlfriend singing in the shower on the other end of the phone. He gets upset, slams his car into the car in front of him so that he can, like, back out and, like, get through traffic. And he's now talking with Ghostface on the phone as he's, like, weaving his way through traffic. And Ghostface is essentially asking him where Sydney Prescott is. He's like, you know, I'll leave you and your girlfriend alone. I just want to know where Sydney is. And Cotton's like, I don't know where Sydney is. Ghostface says that that's the wrong answer. And this, you know gets back to cotton driving like he's in gta trying to get back to his place so that he can try and save his girlfriend from whoever this person is whoever this ghost face is we cut back to cotton's apartment or like i think it's more of like a townhouse type situation and his girlfriend gets out of the shower she goes and gets dressed and then we hear super loud music playing in their space and so she yells out for cotton he's not responding and then she clearly seems a little shaken she goes she turns off the radio she calls for him again still isn't getting any answer and then she's like if this is one of your stab games like i really don't want to play i really don't feel comfortable with this and also on that note if you even if you were wrongly accused of being a murderer would your kink really be dressing up like said masked killer related to the murder that you were wrongly accused of like that's a that's a that's a red flag (laughs) like that's not i mean everyone's got their things and i don't want to judge dress up how you want to dress up but i kind of think it's in poor taste if you're if he's dressing up as the killers from stab which is basically the exact same ghost face that is used in the screen movie that's used in the movie within a movie like all kind 50 shades of fucked up 100 percent. like cotton come on man like what are you doing freddy krueger michael myers pick a different mask my guy like not the stab mask anyway 
that's neither here nor there so she assumes that this you know that that cotton is in the house and then we see ghost face come out she runs locks herself in this office and then we hear cotton on the other end of the door and he's like i'm sorry christine like open the door um, i apologize i just wanted to take the game to the next level and she's like what the fuck are you talking about and she's pissed she is not happy totally valid so she asks what game he's talking about and he's like the game where i rip your insides out she screams and then we see cotton pulling up to the earth well ghostface originally starts like stabbing the door and then we see cotton pull up to like the townhouse area complex whatever you want to call it he jumps out of the car leaves the door open doesn't even like it looks like there's a parking garage right there he obviously doesn't even pull into that he like pulls up to the curb jumps out of the car and takes off running he gets to his front door and it's open he walks in the room like the house is silent so he's like walking through the house calling for christine she's not answering he goes in like the bathroom and sees that she's not there and then he like takes off his jacket and just like drops it on the ground which was one of those like fun facts that i didn't end up putting in the fun facts was i guess he had been working out and so he really wanted to like take off this jacket that he had on so that you could see that like his arms were you know more muscular so good for live i guess but so then cotton goes to the end of this hallway to the door where christine had run into and he sees all the stab marks in the door and he you know calls for christine knocks on the door is trying to get it open of course she's locked in so he busts the door down and christine comes at him with a golf club and she's like you stay the fuck away from me and he's like no like what's going on what happened like you know is there someone here are you okay blah 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 and she's like don't come near me i don't want to talk to you and at this point she they have like kind of swapped where they're at in the room so she's now by the door with her back to the hallway and he is further in this like what looks kind of like an office or like a study space further in the office facing her facing down the hallway and he sees Ghostface come up behind her and he's trying to get her to turn around and she's just yelling at him she's like no like i'm fucking done this is ridiculous like you don't come near me and then of course she gets stabbed by Ghostface. but just before Ghostface stabs her cotton goes to like go toward her to get her out of the way and she knocks him in the head with this golf club which of course disorients him he's having a hard time cotton falls to the ground christine goes down ghostface then of course turns his attention to cotton cotton tries to fight back but i i really think that the hit to the head really disoriented him enough and kind of stopped him from doing much he's able to get ghostface like on the ground he like shoves this bookcase on top of him and then cotton goes to like try to leave but ghostface is able to get up grab him stab him and uh before ghostface delivers the finishing blow tells cotton you should have told me where cindy was and then we see the knife come down and we get our title card and cotton weary and christine are our first kills in scream three now we are in a beautiful mountain range in california we see cindy walking with her beautiful golden retriever she's pretty much lives out in the middle of nowhere she's got a huge gate in the front of her house like around her property she's got an alarm system she works um like telehealth for a crisis counseling hotline um again lots of security she's got a beware of dog sign even though her golden retriever looks like the sweetest dog ever and doesn't seem like it would harm anybody but maybe they did some bite work classes or something cindy essentially lives a very isolated quiet life in the mountains 
runs away from civilization for her own mental health and safety after everything she's been through during the first two films i will say this little montage we get of her on the phone does seem she seems content in her life and i think that giving back and helping people who are going through traumatic experiences through this crisis counseling hotline that she's a part of is probably very rewarding for her then we cut to gail weathers giving a little seminar what looks to be like a university like journalism class and at the end of her little lecture this man stands up and he's like so you're telling us we should be ready to go out and cut each other's throats to get ahead because that's what you did and gail's like metaphorically yes and he says well tell me miss weathers was it worth it and she clearly is a little uh a little stung by that comment things clearly haven't been going super well for gail and we learn that she is currently the anchorwoman for total entertainment which i'm guessing is like an entertainment tonight tabloid type talk uh, television show thing and as she's getting ready to leave you know the lecture's wrapped up and everything she is told by i'm assuming maybe her agent or the person who was putting on this lecture tells gail that the police are waiting for her outside and this is when we meet patrick dempsey's character detective mark kincaid this is when mark shares with gail that cotton weary and his girlfriend have been murdered and he's like i'm gonna share this with you because i know that you have experience with this whole situation but if i see this posted online or i find out you've shared it with anyone i will be arresting you and i will be fine doing that she says she swears she'll keep it between the two of them and she swears on her pulitzer prize that she's not yet won but she plans on winning that she will keep it under wraps aka off the record which we all know with gail nothing's really ever off the record then he shows her a picture of maureen prescott when she's very very young like 18 19 which of course is maureen prescott is sydney's mother and this photo was left with cotton weary's body we cut back to sydney and she's going about her business she's got the news on and she learns from the news that cotton has been murdered and that the slasher flick that he was doing a cameo on was stab three which of course as we know from the scream universe is the movie within a movie that's based on the events that are happening within scream one of my favorite parts of the whole thing is the stab films one of my favorite parts of the franchise i really want to get one of those like stab posters that like look like the screen poster you know what i mean they're so good i just love the whole idea we then cut to the film set at sunrise studios which is where they're filming stab three there's of course police news people trying to get the scoop trying to know what's going on and then this is when we meet like some of the cast of stab three which is titled stab three return to woodsboro and we get our lovely red right hand song during this moment kind of on set which is always fun to see in these movies we also meet john milton at this time who is a, an executive producer of stab we meet roman bridgers who is the director of stab three and they're talking with a bunch of studio execs who are wanting to basically scrap the movie and he's like you know you can't blame the movie on what's happening cotton was an ex-convict who ran a tabloid talk show he had a ton of enemies and then it's really great because detective kincaid and his partner wallace are walking past the area where roman john and the studio execs are talking and john milton's like hey detectives like in your personal opinion no one's saying that cotton weary's death had anything to do with this movie right and kincaid and wallace just kind of look at each other and wallace goes well he was filming a movie called stab and he was stabbed and then they just keep walking <laughs> it's so the like the the dry banter in this is good the sass in this is good chef's kiss 
It's one of my favorite parts of Stab, er, of Stab 3, of Scream 3. Next, uh, like I said, we meet our characters for the Stab 3 movie. So the character who is playing Dewey in Stab is named Tom in Scream. We also meet the character Tyson and the character Angelina. Angelina is playing Sydney in Stab. We meet Sarah Darling, who is also playing a character in Stab, and they're all at the front porch of what looks like a recreation of Stu Mocker's house. Talking about the film possibly being done, we find out that Angelina won the role of playing Sydney from like a talent search that they did. Um, and if you remember in the first, it, well, I guess Scream 2, technically, when the first Stab was coming out, Tori Spelling was playing Sydney, and they recast Sydney from Tori Spelling to this girl, Angelina. None of them are worried that they could be targets, though, for what's going on. Tyson's like, you know, as a young black actor, I can't really go throwing away roles, so he's going to try and see it through. Tom makes a comment that Sydney could be the killer. He's like, what even happened to her? She's probably off in the woods living like the Unabomber, which she's off in the woods, but I don't think she's living like the Unabomber. Then they bring up the fact that Angelina won the role doing the talent search and they're like you know when are you going to get another big break like that and Angelina says that she would rather have the movie stopped if it meant that people like wouldn't die anymore and it's interesting now whenever I rewatch this because of course like when I watched it the first time I didn't realize that Angelina's character was supposed to be the counterpart of like one of the the counterparts of Ghostface um or one of the Ghostfaces I guess and so the subtle choices in the character I feel like you can still see through the scenes that they picked for the final cut where they were planning on Angelina's character being the killer or one of the killers now we see that gail weathers has arrived on set she comes in wearing this bright yellow like pantsuit and she's got this yellow bag that has all these holes in it so that she can put a camera in and like record she goes in and the first person she meets is jennifer who's playing gail in stab and jennifer is so excited she's like i can't believe i get to meet you you know now that i've been playing you for three movies i feel like i'm just in your head and without missing a beat gail goes well that would explain the constant headaches and it's so interesting to see that they've dressed Jennifer in a replica of the green skirt blazer combo that Gail wears in the first Scream. And their hair is very similar, the makeup. They really do look like they could be sisters. It's phenomenal. Like I said, the banter's great. And then Jennifer kind of shades Gail, and she's like, I'm sorry things didn't work out on 60 Minutes 2, but Total Entertainment, that's a pretty good fallback. And Gail, again, without missing a beat, says, sorry things didn't work out with Brad Pitt, but being single that's a pretty good fallback and then jennifer says well it gives me more time to work i mean after all you are such a complex character and gail goes oh and to be played by an actress with such depth and range very sarcastic like i said i will be reenacting the gail jennifer scenes because they are some of my favorite and jennifer is such an amazing character and she has a line which we'll talk about later that's probably my favorite in the entire film when they're talking with john milton and jennifer just like loses it and it's absolutely amazing gail then runs into dewey and they seem very surprised to see one another gail is shocked that dewey has left woodsboro and dewey's honestly not surprised that gail has found her way to the set and doing all the stuff and then we notice that jennifer and dewey seem fairly close and that dewey helps jennifer tap into gail's psyche a little bit and specifically tapping into the lost and lonely little girl inside which gail's very upset by the fact that anyone would claim that she has a lost and lonely little girl inside you know that she's got some like 
trauma and that you know she's not just like this big mean intimidating person that people perceive her to be then we find out that dewey is um, being paid to be a technical advisor for stab three they wanted someone who had been through the real experience and at this point tom is walking up and he's like oh my gosh it's gail weathers and he introduces himself and he essentially compliments her and he's like you know i think that you're great and the story that you did last month of me crashing my car that was so powerful and she kind of like loses her smile and she's like oh you know like i i didn't and she's kind of like floundering a little bit and he's like i really loved the way that you implied that the car crash was caused by drunk driving and not the blowout tire that happened and she's like you know that and she's still kind of floundering because she can't figure out what to say and he goes you know i should probably go check your car is it in the lot like i'm gonna go check your car and make sure no one's messed with your brake lines (laughs) and it's like damn it's so good like people hate gail weathers i love gail weathers as like an objective viewer but if i had to deal with gail weathers in person i get it you know what i mean i get why people just why they feel the way they do for her because she really just is cutthroat and i love that about her again objectively because she's never cut my throat to get ahead (laughs) now we're back with gail and dewey and they have a little disagreement and she says she's working with the police and he's like yeah i know about the pictures like he talked they talked to me about it too and then she asks if he's gotten a hold of sydney and he's like this has nothing to do with sydney and then he makes some comment about like her camera and she's like do you see a camera with me and he looks down at her bag and then she looks down at her bag and she goes ah shit you bought me this purse didn't you and he just kind of smiles and walks off then john milton sees gail and has her escorted off of set very quickly gail gets upset and says that she's working with detective kincaid and she wants to see kincaid and then dewey's like great to see you gail talk to you later like sayonara this is when we get our little cameo by jay and silent bob they walk past gail they think that gail is um like a different talk show host i can't remember who they think that she is off the top of my head right now i should have written it down but it, connie chung um and so they like they're like hey connie like whatever and she flips them off and it's like a funny little moment next we see neil prescott is over at sydney's house it looks like they're having dinner and he maybe he possibly bought her groceries or maybe they went shopping together if sydney left the house question mark sydney says that it's happening again and he's like you know this has nothing to do with you and she asks more about her mom and he's like you know he he says that he thinks about her all the time and it's good to see that the two of them are kind of close i just think that sydney has a hard time trying to come to terms with the fact that she feels like she doesn't know or didn't know her mother at all um and i think that her dad just doesn't know how to help that um because he doesn't know the answers either sadly like maureen kept secrets from both of them i think um because we never find out whether or not neil knew about maureen like living in la and being an actress neil then tries to convince sydney to come home he's like you know the people at work don't even know your real name sydney kind of smiles and she's like yeah well you know that's on purpose psychos can't kill what they can't catch and her dad makes the comment he's like you know it's like you don't even exist anymore and that's why she makes the comment psychos can't kill what they can't catch it's later that evening it seems like her father has left and sydney's fallen asleep on her couch and we see there's pictures of her and her mother next to you know like on this little table next to the couch and then we see a woman in a nightgown walking on sydney's property that we very quickly learn is supposed to be maureen prescott 
of course it's a nightmare cindy um her mom is trying to like come into her house and cindy goes to the window to like look at her mom and then Ghostface pops up and like breaks the window and cindy like wakes up very quickly from her nightmare and almost like throws herself over the couch screaming and the dog kind of gets up like why are you shouting it is bedtime like please don't do that um but very obvious that cindy is really struggling with nightmares from everything that she's been through now we're back to sunrise studios and we see sarah darling getting to set very you know she's like pulling in real fast in her little z3 and the lot seems like a ghost town it's clearly later on in the afternoon people are not around she ends up getting scared by her co-star tyson and one of the fx guys like the special effects guys and they were doing um prop testing for i'm assuming tyson's death scene because he comes out with what looks like a knife through his head and sarah tells tyson that she's looking for roman because roman asked her to come to set so that they could go over script things and her character and tyson's like everyone's gone home like i've not seen anyone roman's not here sarah's irritated so she goes into roman's office to give him a call tyson and the ex the special effects guy leave and then roman calls his office number to like get in touch with sarah and he's like hey i'm really sorry i'm stuck stuck in traffic but i want to talk about your character and she's like what character my name is candy and i die three scenes in and i have to die naked i'm sick of being in my 30s and playing someone in my late teens or early 20s i just want something with substance and roman just kind of blows it off he's like yeah okay so let's go over your lines they start running lines and then roman says something that's not in the script and she's like roman that's not the line knock it off and he's like well, that's the line in my script and she gets mad she's like is this another fucking rewrite this is ridiculous how are we supposed to learn our lines if there's a new script every time we turn around then we quickly learn that this isn't roman of course this is Ghostface sarah goes to leave but as she goes to go out the front door she sees the shadow of someone getting closer to like the the main um like office door for stab three and so she goes to hide in the special effects room and we see that the person coming to the door was a security guard and so of course she's gone in the special effects room and we see that there's all these props all these knives all these things and like just racks of ghost face costumes so she hides in the ghost face costumes and instead of dialing 911 she gets on her phone and she calls the studio to try and like get connected to the security but of course it doesn't like there's no option to just dial for security you have to listen through the options of like if you'd like to know what's playing dial one if you'd like to know blah 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 dial two if you'd like blah 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 dial. and so she's like sitting there listening and of course the rack that she's like hidden herself in with these ghost face costumes has the real ghost face on it ghost face comes out pushes the rack she falls they have their little fight scene she tries she really does i will give it to her she attempts to fight Ghostface off but of course all of the props are just rubber like there's nothing in there that can actually do damage because they're not supposed to do damage it's all special effects so she like grabs a knife and it's all like wobbly and then she takes this other thing and like hits Ghostface with it but it's just like cardboard or whatever so it doesn't do anything so sarah is essentially fucked and gets murdered by Ghostface in this scene now we're at a little cafe with Dewey and Gail and they're talking about helping the police and Dewey's like I don't even know why the police came to you and she's like because I wrote the book on this which is one of her favorite lines in the whole franchise and then we kind of get um some insight into how what happened in their relationship because of course at the end of Scream 2 
they seem kind of fine again. They're like, you know, they had kissed. You know, Dewey gets stabbed and Gail gets injured, but they like ride in the hospital. They ride in the ambulance together. Um, you know, Gail's excited that Dewey's alive, all that stuff. Um, so clearly things didn't work out. We find out that Gail was just bored in Woodsboro. She's like, nothing happened in, happens in Woodsboro. Like one year in Woodsboro is like seven years anywhere else. Dewey didn't want to leave Woodsboro. And we find out that Gail like went to paris for a week and new york for a month and then la forever and she's like it was 60 minutes too how could i say no and gail's like we're just you know we're too different that's why things didn't work and he's like well you used to say that that was our strength i mean both of them still have feelings for one another because then gail asks you know you're not just here because of jennifer are you and he's like you do know all of this isn't about you actually like there are other things going on and as they're talking, Gail's realizing that Dewey knows something that he's not being forthcoming about. And so he finally says, okay, I'll tell you, but it has to be off the record. And she's like, yeah, okay, of course. So he says that a couple of months ago, a woman called the Woodsboro Sheriff's Office and said that she was working on step three and she wanted to see Cindy's file. Of course, Woodsboro told her no. And then a couple of days later, the office room was broken or the like, sheriff's station was broken into and the file room was ransacked and gail's like did the like the only person they took was cindy's file well isn't it and dewey's like well that's where they went looking that's what they were clearly looking for but dewey of course being dewey had already removed the file so they got nothing and then gail's like oh my gosh this is great and she goes to like write it down or like put it in like her you know little voice recording thing and he's like i said off the record and she kind of goes she's like shit okay you're right okay fair you're right fair off the record at this moment we see dewey get a page from jennifer and she wants him to show up at her house so he tells gail goodbye and that he needs to go to jennifer's and then gail leaves with him like they quickly pay their bill and gail follows dewey in her car to jennifer's house and this is when we learn that sarah has been killed or this is when like we learn that the rest of the cast now knows that sarah has been killed and this is when they're starting to put together that people are being killed based on the way that their characters die or like the order that their characters die in stab three gail wants to know who dies next and we learn that gail weathers dies in stab three next gail of course is mad and jennifer's crying and smoking and mad and scared and jennifer's bodyguard stone is like kind of in the background hanging out and gail and dewey go to leave and they go to dewey's rv which is on jennifer's property which of course makes gail mad and as the two of them are exiting jennifer's house jennifer goes up to stone and like like puts her arms out like she wants to be picked up like a child and he puts his arms out like he's you know carrying like a box or something you know like a large box and she just like flings herself into his arms so that he can hold her and it's one of the weirdest like four second like not even four seconds probably like two seconds of the movie but it's so weird that she just like wants to be cradled like a baby while she's smoking a cigarette i i love it it's great then of course we get back to gail and dewey and gail is like you live here with her and she is very upset that he lives on jennifer's property and dewey's like yeah she says that she likes having me around she says that i'm her rock and he's loving this like little ego boost that he has when he's talking about this it's great and gail is irritated to say the least now we see that dewey and gail are going to go to the police station to see what's going on and then we see stone outside 
And Dewey's like, you know, stay with Jennifer, make sure you don't leave her side, and I suggest a search of the grounds. And Stone's like, look. And he calls him Dewdrop, which I love. He's like, Dewdrop, I have very high-profile people on my resume. I know how to do my job, and I'm good at my job, so why don't you take orders from me? And we'll, like, say in our lanes kind of sort of thing. And Dewey's like, yeah, okay, whatever. I, we gotta go. We got other things. We got bigger fish to fry, Stone. He doesn't say that, but you know what I mean. Now we are at the studio and we see that there's been another photo left with Sarah's murder. And again, it's a photo of Maureen Prescott around age 18, 19. Detective Kincaid and his partner Wallace are chatting and they're like, it's really interesting that he's leaving these pictures. And Kincaid's like, it's very Hannibal Lecter, like very, very seven, you know, mocking the police and all of that. And Wallace is like, that movie, those movies don't end well for cops, right? And Kincaid says, well, normally one cop makes it. And Wallace is like, yeah, and... And then Kincaid shrugs. He goes, and one cop doesn't. <laughs> it's so good. I will say both of them make it as far as I'm, I'm aware. I, nothing happens to Wallace that we see. And Mark makes it because he goes on to have a family with Sydney. And this is when Gail comes up. And Wallace is kind of irritated that Kincaid is working with Gail Weathers. Um, but... Kincaid kind of brushes it off. Wallace is like, whatever, I'm going to go do some fingerprints. Dewey wants to increase police presence around Jennifer. And Kincaid's like, mm, no, because we were told by the studios that there's three different versions of the script and that three different people die next, depending on which version. And we don't know which one the killer read. So it's very interesting that like clearly Cotton was going to be the opening kill in every version of the movie. And then that's where things kind of change. Which is interesting because in, I have this like whole, I like want to talk this theory through with someone because I'm like, how different were the scripts? Because we know that Cotton is supposed to die first. So most likely he's dying opening scene pre-title card, right? Like that makes sense. Candy, Sarah's character in Stab. So Sarah is the actress, like what her name is. And then her character in Stab 3 though is called Candy candy's boyfriend supposedly just died and that's like because she's talking with roman and she's like you know why am i taking a shower my boyfriend just died like that's ridiculous so i'm assuming i would assume that in this version of the script candy and cotton were dating and so cotton's character is killed and then candy is killed but typically there's only one kill pre-title card so it would be interesting that they would do like something so they would do different like a f like almost a full different script because then where where would candy's character have fallen in other versions of the movie if she's tied to cotton's character you know what i'm saying like i find it so interesting and like i want to know the other ideas because it's like were they all different like are they really all going to be that different where like the third person is different every time so is can like it's always cotton and then title card and then candy or is it cotton and then candy and then title card because you'd think that for candy to know that her boyfriend died it would be post title card you know what i mean sorry that's a whole tangent um would love to discuss that with someone <laughs> um on how many versions they think and what actually makes sense in terms of like screenplay writing and how that all plays out but i find it so interesting that like it's all so different that it would be 
that they would keep the two kill the two first kills the exact same and then everything would be different from there and i don't know why the idea of it being pre or post title card matters to me but i feel like it does and i feel like people who get it get it you know what i mean like once the title card happens like that's when shit goes like that's why fresh is so interesting because the title card doesn't come up until like 20 minutes into the film you know i gotta do a whole episode just on title cards apparently i'm very passionate about this when i'm sick (laughs) very passionate about it anyway but those are my opinions or my theories or rants tangents on title cards and how i find it so interesting that there's so many like like that there would be three vastly different versions but that the first two kills would be the same and then everything else after that would be different you know what i mean now we see dewey's on set roman's on set and jennifer's on set with her bodyguard and roman's mad he's like all i wanted to do is make a love story but they told me that i needed to make a scary movie first and then i could do the films that i wanted to do and this is ridiculous and he's kind of having like a little meltdown moment and he's like and now i think that i might be next and dewey's like why do you say that and he pulls up this award that he had in his office that Sarah had accidentally dropped during her scene. Like, it didn't seem like that big of a deal. Um, but when she dropped it, the head on the award popped off. Like, she broke it. And so he interprets that as, like, you know, like a little, you know, finger across the throat, like, threat type of a thing. And Even though that's not what it was at all. It was just a totally an accident. Detective Wallace then comes up um, with Detective Kincaid. They have some questions for Roman, and they're like, Sarah was here to meet you. And Roman's like, no, she wasn't. I never called her. And they're like, well, a couple of different people who spoke to her said that you that she was here to meet you, and then she was killed. So what's the deal? And they take Roman down to the station, and he's upset. He's like, someone's trying to kill my movie, um, which, like, probably poor choice of words, Roman. And he's trying to convince jennifer and dewey that it wasn't him he's like i promise i didn't make those calls blah 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 blah. wallace takes roman and then kincaid is trying to wanting to phone into the office saying that they're bringing roman down to like get a room ready for him and everything and his phone's dead so he asks dewey if he can borrow his he takes dewey's phone steps away for a second and then we see sydney at her house and she answers the phone for the crisis counseling line and she says her fake name her pseudonym which is laura and this woman on the other end is crying and she's like laura i'm really scared and cindy's like okay well tell me you know tell me what's going on and this person says that they killed someone and cindy's like okay so then the person that you need to call are the police and this woman says no i need to call you and then cindy looks down at her like um like her home phone operating system and it's basically like what you would see in an office center so there's different lines and so cindy's not connected to the office line she's not connected to the call center line she's connected to the home phone line so this person called her home phone number not the crisis counseling number and as we're figuring this out this person says that you know we find out that this is supposedly marine prescott's voice not the typical ghostface voice this marine i guess you could say tells cindy to turn on the news and cindy sees that sarah has died and the stab three has officially been shut down now we hear the typical ghost face voice come in and they say i have one question for you cindy do you think it's over cindy gets a gun from her desk she checks to make sure her doors are locked and then we cut back to jennifer's house and we see that jennifer's having a little uh rap party i guess you could call it at her place and she's there 
Stone, her bodyguard's there, of course. Tom is there, and Angelina's there. We cut to the interior of Jennifer's house, and Tom is currently smoking and ripping up the script while making comments about the various scenes that they were going to have. Angelina tells him to stop, that he's scaring her, and he tells her to give up the sweet, innocent girl act, and she gets up to go outside because she needs some space from him. He's talking with Jennifer, and he's like, you know, I bet she cut and scraped her away and was willing to push past any girl to get that role. And Jennifer goes, oh, so you asked her out, and she said no? And he goes, well, that has nothing to do with it. It's like, okay, sure, Tom. Next, we see Jennifer take Dewey to her bedroom, and at this point, Gail's pulling up in front of Jennifer's house. It's fully dark outside, and before Gail goes to, like, knock or go into the house, she peeks around and she sees dewey and jennifer like walking through the house so gail goes around to the side to see where the two of them go like i said they end up in jennifer's room and at first Dewey's really nice and he's talking about gail being a dreamer and then jennifer calls gail narcissistic and Dewey's like no she's not she has a really good heart she just hides it and jennifer's like gosh it sounds like you're still in love with her and he's like well i also forgot to say you know that she's condescending and heartless and then he just starts like bad mouthing her and we see that they're looking at a picture of jennifer just as gail um for like uh like promo shots these were pictures taken around sunrise studios for like the stab movies and dewey tells jennifer that she looks a lot like gail you know that they did a really good job like capturing her likeness and everything and then stone is doing a little perimeter sweep and finds gail as he calls slinking outside the bedroom window he brings gail to the front of the house inside and he calls for dewey and he's like your girlfriend's out here so him and jennifer come into the living room and stone is like look who i found slinking around outside and gail's like i wasn't slinking i was walking and stone says she was eavesdropping outside the bedroom window and gail goes yeah a bedroom that you seemed awfully comfortable in because of course gail is jealous and then Dewey takes Gail into another room to talk with her, and we find out that Roman was released from the jail because the calls didn't come from his phone. It came from a cloned cell phone, obviously. Typical ghost face. Gail then brings up the photos of Maureen Prescott, and she asks Dewey how old he thinks Maureen would be in the pictures. And he's like, you know, 18, 19, or 20, you know, maybe early 20s, but definitely, you know, younger, younger adult. And she's like, exactly, but I can't find anything about Maureen from that age and dewey's like well she lived in woodsboro her whole life so someone there has to know something and we find out that when maureen turned 18 she left and nobody knew where she was for a couple of years until she came back to woodsboro but it was like she fell into a black hole nobody nobody knows where she was nobody knows what she was doing and maureen was never forthcoming with that information to gail's knowledge to anyone that she can talk to Gail wants to know why the killers are leaving pictures from this specific point in Maureen's life where nobody seems to know, like, where Maureen was. So, like, how did the killer then get these pictures if nobody else knows where Maureen was or what she was doing? And as we're looking at the pictures, Dewey's looking at the, the newest one that was found with Sarah's, and it is, the background is basically exactly the same from the picture that we were just looking at of jennifer dressed as gail on sunrise studios so maureen prescott was at sunrise studios in la working as an actress for a few years in between living in woodsboro next we cut outside to stone and he's doing another ground search he's in dewey's trailer and then dewey gives him a call and he tells stone he's like i need you to come inside i we need to go to the police and stone's like dude i don't work for you like I'm going through your trailer. I'm just making sure everything's safe for you when you come back in here. 
and Dewey's answer is basically, would I call you if it wasn't important? Like, would I be bothering you if it really wasn't important? And then Stone makes the comment, you know, I'm just making sure there's not a killer in here waiting for you to get you like they got your little sister, which I think is personally over the line. I was shocked the first time I heard that. Sometimes it still gets me. I'm always like, oh, Jesus, Stone. And Dewey's like, I can't believe you would just say that that makes me and then we cut to the ghost face voice ghost face is angry ghost face then pops out um in the trailer and stop pops up behind stone and stabs him in the back ghost face takes care of stone fairly quickly which i was shocked because i like stone's a larger dude um a bodyguard so i would have thought he would have a little bit more fight in him um but i think ghost face getting the the surprise attack worked in in their advantage we see galen do we come into the living room but everyone is gone from jennifer's house like the front door flings open and dewey pulls his gun out um but no one like comes in the front door jennifer then comes in the back door he points his gun at jennifer and then tom comes in and so then he points it at tom and then everyone's screaming and yelling <laughs> it's kind of funny and so now the living room consists of con- so now the living room consists of Jennifer, Angelina, Tom, Dewey, and Gail. And then we see Stone coming into the, the frame of the front door. He's covered in blood. He points to Dewey. He points to the phone. He falls on his face. And we see that he still has a knife in his back. They go to check on Stone, but Stone is dead. Everyone then goes back inside. Um, and Dewey locks the door as he's coming in. Everyone's panicking. The lights go out. Everyone starts screaming. They go out the back door, and Dewey says that they need to stay together. They need to stay calm, and then we hear a phone ringing. Everyone's checking their phones, but no one, f- no one's phone like actually appears to be ringing, and then we hear that the fax machine starts to beep. So it wasn't the phone. It wasn't a phone call. It was the fax ringing that there was a fax getting ready to come in, and everyone runs inside, and we see that there's script pages coming through the fax machine, and gail's like this is a trap we need to get out of here the killer wants us right here so we got to go they pull everyone out of the house but people are too curious i guess you could say to know what's on the script pages and so tom and jennifer go back in to read what's going on and you know it's and it's very much like scripting out what the situation they're in right now so it's like interior jennifer's house um you know everyone's scared the killers and then it says the killer's going to grant immunity or safety to one person and these these faxes are still coming in and so everyone you know wants to know what it says and it do ends up pulling jennifer out of the house so now it's just tom reading these pages and he's like yelling them so that they can hear them outside you know with the door open and they're like i want to know what it says and gail says wait for the fucking movie and then they want you know they want to know who the killer is going to grant immunity to or grant safety to and tom is having a hard time reading what it says so he picks up this lighter and he flicks it on and we see you know we see the light shine over the page and it says to whoever smells the gas and then we get an exterior shot of the house of like the window where tom is near he looks up and the house explodes sending everyone flying um down this little like cliff area in jennifer's backyard all of them seem to have been sent different directions after they started like rolling slash falling down the hillside but the first person that we see after 
this explosion is Dewey. He stands up. He immediately calls for Gail, of course. We hear Gail and Jennifer both yelling from him, but of course they're not together. They're in opposite directions. And he's trying to figure out if he goes for Gail or if he goes for Jennifer. Of course he goes for Gail. We see that Dewey's higher up on the hill than Gail is, and she's kind of down like by this roadside, by this car. And Dewey calls out for her, and then Ghostface comes up behind Gail, Dewey tells her to like look out and then he takes his gun out and the reaction time he is quick shoots Ghostface. it looks like lands a couple of hits on him maybe gail ducks down Ghostface falls to the ground and then like rolls under this like suv that was parked on the side of the road and like is able to get away dewey makes his way down the hill checks on gail they're fine everything's good they have like a little moment and gail's like oh my gosh like you know you came for me or whatever and he's like of course i did and they get ready to kiss and then jennifer comes up and she's like what the fuck happened to you and of course gail and dewey scream jennifer's mad she's like where did you disappear to who gave you a place to stay who are you supposed to be protecting me and then she punches dewey in the face and gail's like not my man she doesn't say it but that's the that's the attitude she's given and then she punches jennifer in the face and Jennifer's on the ground and she looks up at Gail and she goes, my lawyer liked that. And Gail says, not as much as I did. Again, it's perfect. Then we see Angelina show up and she comes from like way down the road, it seems like. And she's like, oh my God, Tom was in the house. And she starts kind of freaking out, coming out of her shock that, you know, the house exploded while Tom was inside. And this is when Dewey ends up seeing a picture of Maureen Prescott on the ground where he had shot Ghostface in kind of the broken glass from the window of the SUV that broke when Gail or when Dewey was firing the gun. Um, he ended up hitting the window, the glass, the window broke, of course. And so um, on the ground with all the glass is a picture is a third picture of Maureen Prescott. And but on the back of this picture, we see that there's a note that says I killed her. We're back at the police station and we're trying to figure out what exactly that means. And Gail's like, we know that Stu and Billy killed Marine, so why is this new killer trying to take credit for it? It like really doesn't make any sense. And Detective Kincaid is like, there maybe there was a third killer. Detective Kincaid really wants to talk to Sydney, and he's really pushing Dewey about talking to Sydney about this. And I really love this moment because after Dewey loses his sister, him and Sydney's um like relationship really goes into that brother sister and dewey becomes very protective over sydney which i think is really lovely and i think that dewey also carries guilt that he wasn't able to protect tatum and so he kind of makes it his mission to make sure that sydney is going to be okay and that he's he's at least going to be able to save her and so he is like refusing to he's like sydney doesn't have anything to do with this this doesn't have anything to do with her like you're not going to get her involved in this and dewey basically outright refuses to give detective kincaid sydney's contact information and then we see wallace come in and it looks so it's like there's like the main bullpen of the police station and then there's this like back office area where it looks like there's detective kincaid's desk and then maybe like a couple of other things and then later we see that there's a smaller room behind that that i'm assuming is that seems to be wallace's office so wallace comes into kincaid's office area and he's upset. He's like, look, we've got a really angry mayor. We've got multiple dead celebrities, a dead bodyguard, and an exploded house. Like, we have to figure out what the fuck's going on. And Wallace and Kincaid are still 
pressuring Dewey about the getting in contact with Sydney and Gail's trying to dissolve the situation. She's like, look, we can figure this out. Why would the killer be leaving these pictures of Maureen? Why at this time? Sydney wasn't even born yet. So, you know, what? like she's not going to know. She's not going to know the answers as to why the killer's leaving these pictures. Trying her best, surprisingly, I think, to deter attention away from Sydney, which I think is really sweet because it's kind of unlike Gail, um, and it's Gail kind of being a little more empathic, I guess you could say, or sympathetic to not wanting to involve Sydney. Wallace tells Dewey, he's like, are you with us or against us? Like, do you want to help us or not? And Kincaid then asks Dewey if he'd like to have the conversation that they're having with the polygraph test. And Dewey's like, is that a threat? And Kincaid's like, when it's a threat, you'll know it. And then Dewey goes, wait, was that a threat? And Kincaid turns like he's getting ready to yell at Dewey. And Gail gets in front of him and she's like, boys, boys, why don't we compare our gun calipers later? Again, Gail says that this is an issue with Maureen, and Kincaid's like, no, this is an issue with Sydney. Either Mr. Riley is going to obstruct justice, or he's going to put me in touch with her. And then we cut to Dewey coming out to the lobby of the station, and he's leaving a voicemail on Sid's phone. And we can see that while he's leaving this voicemail, of course, Sydney's walking into the police station behind him. So Sydney comes into the police station her and Dewey hug and then before he takes her back to like you know the main bullpen area in Kincaid's office he's like what are you doing I told you to stay hidden and she's like the killer found me I'm no more safe up there than I am down here and then she asks Dewey about Kincaid she's like so you know how's this Kincaid guy he's like well let's let's just go back there this is when she meets Detective Kincaid and instantly there's this like a little bit of chemistry between the two of them but the scene's really good because Gail and Sydney see one another for the first time. And you can tell they're both happy to see one another, but their relationship's still, like, rocky. And so Gail kind of gets closer to Sydney, like, she's going to give her a hug. And then she kind of backs off a little bit. And then Sydney kind of puts her arms up, like, I think I'm okay giving you a hug. And then she puts her arms down. And then eventually her and Gail, like, decide to hug after this, like, putting their arms up and down for, for a quick second. And then I think it's really great. And... Sydney then says, I'm glad that you're okay, which is really nice. And then she meets Detective Kincaid officially. And then Sydney breaks the news that the killer called her. And both Gail and Kincaid are like, what happened? What did he say? And Sydney being Sydney is great. And she goes, oh, you know, same old, same old. How you been? How's it going? How you want to die? Same thing. Same old thing. And I think it's great because she tries to be so lax about it, which I know she's not a lot. Like, clearly she's got PTSD. Clearly she's got anxiety. But that's just how her character chooses to cope. And I love that because I feel like I would also cope with this trying to, like, find humor and, like, kind of be sarcastic in it because, you know, being scared only gets you so far. And Sydney knows that, especially in these situations. So then the four of them are brainstorming about how the killer got Sydney's number. They talk about Dewey's cell phone. And Dewey says the only people who have used his phone are... Um, jennifer and detective kincaid and kincaid's like whoa i'm the cop and you're in my office riley like you need to chill out which i don't think dewey was being accusatory but like they asked him do you have Sydney's number saved in your phone he says yes they said okay who's used your phone and he was thinking and he's like well jennifer has and oh and then kincaid when his phone was dead on the lot like we saw that in a scene in the movie and kincaid gets a little defensive which is a little nerve-wracking um even though we know, I mean, spoiler, because I gave it in the beginning, we know that Kincaid's not the killer. But I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, I don't want it to be Patrick Dempsey. Like, especially with the weird kind of flirting chemistry that him and 
Sydney were having, I was like, I'm gonna be heartbroken if this girl picks another boy who is just bad for her because she picked Billy and he was psycho. And then she picks Derek in the second one and Derek was actually a good guy and she had to watch him die in front of her. Fucking terrible. She still wears his Greek letters, which we see her wear in this movie. Just, ugh. She need, she needed a break in the romance department and I think Kincaid is great for her. Sydney then sees the pictures of her mom and she starts looking at them. Sydney then gets a little upset at Dewey and she's like, why didn't you tell me about this? And he's like, I was afraid that it was bait just to get you to come out of hiding and I didn't want you to fall for it. And Sydney says that she does she didn't even know that her mom had spent time in LA slash Hollywood. And Sydney says that she wants to see where the pictures were taken. So then we cut to them arriving at Sunrise Studios. We see Kincaid drop off his partner Wallace and Kincaid says he's going to go talk to some of the studio execs about the photos and where the killer could have gotten them. And then Wallace is, makes a comment about Kincaid being sweet on Sydney. He's like, I know where you're going. You're going to go get her some flowers and chocolates, aren't you? And Kincaid's like, go do your job. This is when we meet Martha Meek's Randy's sister. She's come to LA to show them the tape that Randy left that he recorded in the second movie when they were at university. And it's basically him going over the rules of a trilogy. And I think it's such a great scene after Randy's death which I totally get why they killed Randy off, but his character's great. And so it was nice having this little touch. It was a nice surprise to have him on screen, um, having him, you know, recording something from the past and then it coming back to the future. And he says that the killer does come back and he's for real. There's a few things you have to remember. If this is a sequel, same rules apply, but if you find yourself with an, dealing with an unexpected backstory and a real tough killer, the sequel will not apply and you're dealing with a trilogy. Randy says that in trilogies, it's all about going back to the past and finding out something that we thought was true that was never actually true. So what we find out in this one is while it was Billy and Stu who killed Maureen, they were being puppeteered essentially by Roman Bridgers. Randy then goes on to the super trilogy rules, which are as follows. Number one, the killer is going to be almost superhuman. Stabbing him won't work. Shooting him won't work. Basically, in the third one, you got to cut off his head and burn the pieces. Number two, anyone, including the main character, can die including Sydney. Number three, the past will come back to bite you in the ass. Whatever you think you know about the past, forget it. The past is not at rest, and any sins you've committed in the past are about to break out and destroy you. Randy then says, so in closing, let me say good luck, Godspeed, and for some of you, I'll see you soon, because the rules say not all of you are going to make it. I didn't, not if you're seeing this tape. And then we get static as the little tape that he recorded ends. It's such a good little scene, um, and of course, we got to have the rules for the trilogy, which is always great. And we see everyone give their final farewells to Martha and she heads out. Gail says she has an idea and she'll catch up with everyone later. She heads off somewhere else on the studio lot. Dewey asks her if she wants company and she says, no, I work better alone. And then she makes her exit. Sydney says, wow, I guess nothing's really changed. And Dewey just kind of nods his head. We see Gail arrive at the archives of Sunrise Studios and she's trying to get in, but there's a keypad or you need like a swipe card to get in. And at this point, Jennifer shows up and is like, do you need one of these? I can help you. And I love it because then Jennifer explains to Gail, like Gail asks why she's there. And she's like, I'm going to hang out with you because someone wants to kill me. No, because someone wants to kill you. So wherever you go, I go because whoever wants to kill you will kill you because I'm with you. And so they won't kill me. They'll kill you because I'll be with you. Does that make sense? And Gail says, absolutely not. 
not at all. And Jennifer says, you know, in the movies, I play you as being much smarter. And Gail says, and as a sane person, that must be a real stretch for you. That's one of my favorite interactions between the two of them. It's just so good. So Jennifer's able to get them access into the archives. The two of them go into this archive, like basement area run by the beautiful, the stunning Miss Carrie Fisher or as she's known in the Scream universe, Bianca Burnett. And it's funny because even Jennifer and Gail are like, oh my God, are you? And she's like, no, I was up for Princess Leia, but I didn't get it. I was this close. And you know who gets it? The girl who sleeps with George Lucas. So another call back to the kind of casting couch uh, phenomena that swept through California and probably still is present to this day because that shit doesn't just go away because people are creepy. Gail then apologizes for bringing up like a sore subject and shows Bianca the photograph and is like, I'm here with the police researching. I need any information you have on Maureen Prescott or Maureen Roberts, which is Maureen's maiden name. And Bianca's like, I can't help you. I don't work for the police. I work for the studio. So unless you have blessings from the studio, I'm not giving you over any, I'm not going to give over any information. Gail then pulls out a $50 bill from her purse and says, well, would you work for the president? And Bianca slides like the $50 bill and the photo back to Gail and says, the president of the studio. And Jennifer goes, seriously, that's it? What are you, a reporter for Woodsboro High? And then she like pulls off this ring on her finger and she slams it on the table. And she's like, it's worth two grand. Are you going to help Gail Weathers or not? And just kind of like stands there with her arms crossed. And Gail goes, yeah, and kind of, you know, like stands there like, you're going to help Gail Weathers or not? Then we learn that Maureen, of course, was using a stage name, which is Rena Reynolds. And we find out that Rena Reynolds, a.k.a. Maureen Prescott, a.k.a. Maureen Roberts, a.k.a. Sydney's mother, was featured in a bunch of horror films from back in the day that get this. The executive producer of Stab, John Milton, was the director on. And this piece of information leads to one of my favorite lines in the film. But we will get there soon. Now we cut to Cindy in the bathroom and this scene very much mimics the scene from the first one where she runs away from Billy in the school and goes into the bathroom to hide and then is attacked by Ghostface in the bathroom. So she's kind of like wetting her face in the bathroom. I think kind of feeling sad and and having some grief after seeing Randy on the tape Um, because I know Sydney feels you know, felt very, very responsible for his death in the second one. Um, she, like, if you've not listened to that episode, we talk about how she's, like, crying, and she's like, I have I have to call his mom, like, I have to, and Dewey's like, I, I called, it's okay, it's fine. And Sydney took, of course, that death very, very hard um, of Randy. So while she's in the bathroom, we hear kind of rustling in one of the stalls behind her. So she pulls out pepper spray from her purse and she pushes open the door and we see that Angelina is in there and she's got a ghost face mask and a bunch of different props. And, and she gets so excited to see Sydney and she's like, oh my gosh, like I, it's you. Like I'm, I playing, I'm, I'm you like, well, I'm not you, but like I'm playing you in the movie. Like what's your life? Like, and she's kind of floundering a little bit and Sydney kind of looks at the ghost face mask and Angelina's like, well, you know, I thought since, since, you know, we, we're not doing the movie anymore, like no one's going to need it. And like, I might never get another role. So I thought no one would miss these if I just took some stuff. 
And Sydney kind of is like, okay, sure, I guess that makes sense. And Angelina is really excited. And she's like, you know, I really wanted to make you proud. And, you know, I, I know that this is your life. And I really wanted to try and do right by you by taking on this role. And Sydney, of course, is being a kind person. She's like, you know, I'm sure it would have been great. I'm sure you would have done well which I'm sure Sydney has never wanted to see any of the stab movies, but tries to be nice to this girl who's trying to be nice to her, but it is odd. And like, you know, she's got this ghost face mask and all these things. And so then her and Sydney kind of say goodbye to one another. Angelina, you know, kind of rushes out the door and then Sydney realizes that she's dropped something. So she picks it up and she's like, hey, like you forgot this and goes to chase after her. But then she finds herself on the set of the movie. Like the door that Angelina left through leads to the set of Stu Mocker's house. And then she sees her, like the set of her house kind of, um, I think it's a, I think it's across like the, the room like it's almost like across the street from Stu Mocker's house. And so she goes into her house, finds her bedroom, and then she's kind of reminiscing and having some like audi- auditory flashbacks of Billy sneaking into her window. And she makes the comment of, on if he would settle for a PG-13 relationship. And we hear all those audios in the back while she's sitting on the bed. She makes her way over to the window. And this is when Ghostface pops up, breaks the window, grabs Sydney, and they fall back like off of the roof. Sydney then gets up from the ground, runs into the house, locks the door. So she's in what is the set of her house from the first one. And then Sydney is attacked by Ghostface that comes out of the closet behind her, which is this is the scene that I was talking about where it seems very clear that there would be two killers because how, you know, we saw Sydney get up and run from Ghostface while Ghostface was still on the ground. How then were they able to sneak in around her? I'm sure that they, you know, there's other entrances and ways for them to get into the house, not the front door on the set. However, how would they have been able to sneak into the closet behind her to then pop out and scale her? So she runs up the stairs and then there's this cart that looks like it's probably just like a tech cart or a prop cart or something um, at the top of the stairs. So she pushes it down into Ghostface and then she goes in to run into what would be I'm assuming her room, but because it's the set, all the rooms are different. So she runs out and there's no room there. It's just an empty door. So she almost falls into what is her bedroom that's on like the floor below. So she ends up hiding on the other side of the door because there's like, you know, the walls, of course, are unfinished because that's not a room that's ever going to be filmed or anything. So there's just all these like two by fours that are there that, of course, the drywall on the other side in the hallway of the home is attached to. So she like puts herself in like standing on these two by fours, like clings to them. And so then when Ghostface follows her through that door, she pulls him down onto the bed and then she goes in and is standing at the top of the stairs and she's yelling for Dewey. And then she hears her mom's voice call out to her. And so Sydney follows it. So this is, I'm assuming what would be like her parents' bedroom and her mother's murder scene. Cause there's blood everywhere. There's like a Woodsboro coroner's office body bag on the floor that I'm assuming is supposed to be like holding her mom. Sydney starts crying and she's having again, these like audio flashbacks of when Billy and Stu were essentially admitting to killing her mom and they were planning to kill her. Then Sydney goes to the window of what would be her parents' room 
And the dead body on the floor stands up and like starts making its way towards Sydney. And it's like, come give your mother a hug. And Sydney throws herself off the second story, like opens the window and just like launches herself off of the roof, lands hard on the ground. The lights flip on and Dewey and the police come running in to check on Sydney. She's crying and freaking out. The police go to see what's going on. Sydney's crying, telling Dewey that she heard her mom's voice. He's trying to console her. And he's like, you weren't supposed to see that. Like, it's all set up for the murder scene. Like, you weren't supposed to go in there. I'm so sorry you had to see that. Then we see Detective Kincaid come running in a little bit later than everyone. And he wants to know what happened. We also see Tyson and Angelina on the set as well as like come on the set at the same time as Kincaid and then we see Wallace talking to Angelina like in the next scene and she's admitting that she stole the mask and he's like you stole it and she's like I took it like a souvenir and he's like you took the mask or you stole the mask and then Tyson's like don't look at me I didn't take shit we see Kincaid talking to Sydney and she's like the killer was in there he was in Woodsboro and he's like that's not Woodsboro Sydney he tells Sydney that he's going to put her under watch at a safe house and that she's going to be fine and they're going to take her to the station and then everything's going to be okay she gets in the car with Kincaid and the two of them pull off the lot leaving Dewey and the rest of the crew on the set this is when Jennifer and Gail show up and they show Dewey the pictures of Raina Reynolds from the archives and then they make their way to John Milton's office in Milton's office we see Roman is there and they're talking and Roman's upset because his career's done he's like he's venting to John John's like look there's going to be other movies it's fine your career's going to be okay it's not that big of a deal and this is when Dewey Jennifer and Gail burst into Milton's office Gail immediately asks John about Rena Reynolds and Roman's like I don't know who that is and Milton basically excuses Roman and we find out that today's Roman's birthday and that they're going to have a party for him later Roman takes his exit and now it's John, Jennifer, Dewey, and Gail in John's office and they talk about Sydney's mother, Rena Reynolds. And he's like, I don't know. I've had tons of actors work with me in the past, like thousands of people and, you know, many women. I, you know, I can't remember every actress. And Gail's like, oh, I didn't say that she was an actress. I just said her name. And Dewey's like, yeah, I'm going to give Kincaid a call and then we'll see you know what he has to say about all of this and then of course john milton remembers he's like look just give me a second she was in a few of my movies it's not that big of a deal and jennifer has this like little i don't want to call it a mini monologue because it's only a few lines but it's my absolute favorite part of the movie because she just gets so heated and she goes oh and it's just coincidental that you've made millions of dollars off the story of her murder and then she goes you're obsessed with her and you're obsessed with her daughter <laughs> she just screams it i hope that that wasn't too loud she just screams it and gail goes easy geraldo and then john's like what are you guys getting at like what are you inferring to he says that he has no no like um idea of why the murders are taking place he's like the studio came to me with stab it wasn't my idea i didn't even know until halfway through the first one like we were filming the first one that it was about rena like i didn't even make that connection until we were halfway through and at that point i knew i couldn't come out with it because it would look terrible gail's convinced that he's hiding something and he's like look it's dead and buried you don't need to dig it up and gail's like how would you like it dug up on national television and then he explains that reina would go to these talent parties with male talent scouts male directors that sort of thing and essentially sleep with people in order to get ahead in hollywood 
He's like, it was the 70s. That's how the city is. It's not for innocent people. And she knew exactly what she was doing when she would show up to these events. John says, if you want to get ahead in Hollywood, you've got to play the game or go home. We're now back in Detective Kincaid's office. And it's just him and Sydney right now. And she asks him what he knows about trilogies. And he's like, like movie trilogies. And she's like, well, you seem pretty interested in cinema. And he's got all these like movie posters, like old movie posters in his office. And... He's like, you know, this is just my life. Like, I grew up here. To me, Hollywood is about death. And Sydney's a little thrown off by this. And he's like, I'm a homicide detective. Day in and day out, I see the violence that people do to each other. And you kind of get haunted by it. And then he says, I know what it's like to see ghosts that don't go away. To be watching a scary movie in your head, whether you want to or not. And then Sydney tells him, you can't shoot ghosts. And he says, you can't arrest them either. They talk a little bit about her mother and her family. And Sydney's like, I thought I had the perfect family, but I was wrong. You know, my mom had a whole secret life and I've tried to understand that. And as soon as I thought I had everything figured out, I found out that there was more secrets. So I feel like I really didn't know her at all. Then Detective Kincaid is like, look, I believe you saw something on set. So you're going to stay here. I'm going to go back to the studio, search the set some more with the rest of the officers. Sydney asks why that's good news, and he's like, because that means we're dealing with a flesh and blood killer, not a ghost, and I know how to handle guys like him. Sydney asks how, and he says, you either catch them or you kill them. He goes to leave, and he, like, takes a couple steps out of, like, his office door area into the, the larger bullpen, and she says, hey, detective, what's your favorite scary movie? And he comes back, and he leans in, and he's very close to her face, and he whispers, my life. And then he leaves, and Sydney, under her breath, says, mine too. The whole scene's like kind of like flirty, kind of menacing, kind of threatening. 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10. It reminds me of the line that I love, um, like flirting wise. That feels very like, if you want to flirt with me, here's a, a scene to show you. And it's when Billy Loomis is like, I was at home watching The Exorcist and it got me thinking about you. <laughs> and just said, he goes, it did. And yeah, just talk to me about scary movies and it's, it's pretty easy. It's not that difficult. Now we're in the car with Dewey, Gail and Jennifer. I'm trying to figure, they're trying to figure out like what their next move is. Gail wants to go back to the station, talk with Kincaid and Jennifer's like, my Gail would be more aggressive. Then Dewey gets a call from Sydney and Sydney says that she's not at the station, that John Milton called her and said that he wanted to tell her something about her mom. So she's going to John Milton's house and Dewey's like, I don't think that that's a good idea please don't do that. And Sydney's like, no, it's okay. Detective Kincaid's with me. I've got LAPD production, but I'd feel better if you were there. So Dewey says, okay, fine. We're on our way. But Sydney just hangs up before he can say anything else. So now the three of them are going to John Milton's house, which is where they're throwing a Roman's birthday party. And when the three of them walk in, it's Roman, Tyson, Angelina, but we don't see John Milton. We don't see Sydney and we don't see Kincaid. Roman says that he didn't invite Sydney and he's not sure where she is, but he's like, you know, the more the merrier, it's a party and everyone's drinking. Roman says that he's going to look for the private screening room that supposedly John Milton has hidden somewhere in his house. And Tyson's like, why would you go off on your own? That's a stupid idea. Don't do that. Jennifer says she'll go with Roman. Angelina says she'll go with Tyson. Dewey and Gail are going to stay in the main living room where they kind of came in through not even a front door, like a side door by the pool. Um, but they're going to stay there and wait for Sydney. Roman says he bets the screening room is in the basement, so him and Jennifer make their way down, well, to the basement. Jennifer refuses to go down the stairs. 
Of course, the light on the stairs is flickering. Roman makes his way down into the basement and she, Jennifer's hesitant. She's like, I don't really like basements. I don't feel like going down there. Tyson and Angelina are making their way upstairs to the second story of the house. Back in the basement, Roman's found a bunch of um, like costumes and props and um, character costumes from all of the horror movies that John Millen has done. So there's like zombies and aliens. And we see Jennifer still standing at the top of the stairs. She hasn't come down in the basement yet. And she's yelling at Roman asking what he's finding. And he's just telling her about all the different props and things. Roman then finds a casket and he opens it. And of course there's like a dead person like prop in there. We cut back to Dewey and Gail. Sydney and Kincaid still aren't there. Gail tells Dewey to call the number that called him, like basically call Sydney back. And so he re hits redial, and then we hear the phone ringing in the house in like this closet slash wardrobe area. And next to the phone is this little disc that's essentially a voice changer, which is how Ghostface has been able to make all the calls. It's got Dewey's voice, it's got Gail's voice, it has Roman, it has Sydney, and it's not good. So they know that they essentially were set up by Ghostface, Gale, and Dewey to be there. And they're like, we got to find Sydney. We got to figure out what's going on. Dewey gives Gale his gun and says that she needs to go find Jennifer and Roman, and he's going to go find Tyson and Angelina. Dewey runs into Tyson first. He, like, goes upstairs and goes into this bedroom, and they kind of, like, come around this corner and, like, startle one another. But he... Tyson doesn't know where Angelina is. And I love it because Tyson asks Dewey what's going on. And he and Dewey just looks at him and goes, looks like stab three is back in production. Now we see Gail at the top of the basement stairs, but Jennifer's gone. It seems like Roman is as well. Gail makes her way down into the basement. She's calling for both of them, but of course no one answers. Gail finds the casket, and then when she opens it, we see that because there's like um like something preventing the casket from closing all the way. So when she opens it, Roman is in the casket covered in blood with a knife in his stomach. Gail checks his pulse, doesn't seem to feel anything, and then Gail and Jennifer run into each other. They start screaming, and then they take each other's hands and run out of the basement looking for Dewey. As they're running through the hallway, Angelina comes out of this fake wall, essentially. There's, like, all these secret passages in John Milton's house, which I would imagine would be, like, servants' quarters type things, you know, to, like, for servants to, like, get in certain places or whatever. Um... And so she comes out and they tell Angelina that, you know, she should come with them. And she's like, no, fuck you guys. I'm getting the fuck out of here. Jennifer's trying to convince her. She's like, no, like, stay with us. Like, we need to stay together. And Angelina turns around the hallway and she's like, I didn't fuck that pig Milton to get a leading role just to die in here with second rate celebrities like you two. And then she turns and runs down the hallway. And Kayla and Jennifer are shocked by the confession and you know up until this point of course we've seen angelina play this very like docile innocent character essentially and then she just turns around and just lets the two of them have it then we hear dewey calling for gail and he's saying that he's up on the second story then we see angelina get stabbed by ghostface just before she makes it to the door gail and jennifer find dewey in the bedroom where he had run into tyson or just outside the bedroom technically and they're talking with him for a moment and jennifer's like we're gonna be safe if we stick together right and dewey's like yeah of course and then ghostface comes up and just fucking socks dewey right in the face gail and jennifer then fully make their way into the bedroom tyson comes back tackles ghostface like tyson doesn't even really have a chance to think he just goes oh fuck and like jumps and pushes him into the wall jennifer locks herself in the closet Ghostface slices Dewey's arm as Dewey's making his way into the bedroom trying to help Tyson. 
Ghostface then stabs Tyson. Gail takes this vase off of one of the like end tables by the bed and throws it at Ghostface. Ghostface then goes for Gail, but Tyson gets up and starts running. So then Ghostface makes sure that Tyson can't get out of the house. And then while Ghostface is chasing Tyson, we see that Jennifer, while she's in the closet, she's like sitting under all these clothes trying to like hide, I think. And she pushes back into this wall and the wall turns. And so she she tilts and she ends up going behind this like wall of mirrors that is in the bedroom kind of in one of those like little secret hidden passages so jennifer makes her way through the secret passages she's trying to find a way out and then we see tyson get thrown off of a balcony down to kind of where the doors were that jennifer gail and dewey came in by the pool and then ghostface makes his way into the secret passage ends up finding jennifer chasing jennifer and poor jennifer gets killed by ghostface while dewey and gail are standing in that bedroom she gets killed right behind those mirrors and she's like pounding on the mirrors trying to get their attention but they can't hear her and of course it's only a one-sided mirror so they can't see that she's behind them so they see these mirrors moving and so dewey takes his gun and starts of course at the wrong end of the mirrors and starts shooting at the top of them so they all um like break and we see that there's you know this secret passage behind them so he shoots all of them and then of course the last mirror frame is the one that jennifer's body falls through after she's been stabbed by ghostface and of course ghostface has disappeared so now we're down to just dewey and gail we don't know where sydney is we don't know where kincaid is dewey and gail are trying to figure out where everyone went they weren't sure if tyson got out and then Dewey goes to check um, another room. They're kind of in that living, that like main living room hallway area. And Ghostface comes up behind Gail and like grabs her. They struggle as Dewey's walking down the other end of the hallway, trying to see where maybe Tyson went. And Gail and Ghostface end up falling down the basement stairs. Gail is still conscious, but it seems like Ghostface maybe has not been knocked out. Gail calls Dewey and is like, I'm at the bottom of the stairs. Please come help me. And Dewey then finds Tyson's dead body by the pool. And Dewey's like, well, how do I know that I'm talking to the real Gail and not Ghostface? And she's like, open the door and you'll see us down here. And he's like, but isn't that like, don't you think that's what Ghostface would say? And I think he's asking the right questions, but I do think it's fair that Gail is upset by him being like, I don't know if I should open this door then as dewey opens the door ghostface jumps up and goes to stab gail and this is when dewey pulls his gun to shoot but he's out of ammo after shooting all the mirrors in the bedroom so ghostface turns looks at him and then throws his knife at dewey thankfully it hits dewey in the head with the handle end and not of course the blade end but then dewey like takes this hit to the temple and falls down the stairs like it's enough to knock him out and make him fall down the stairs gail of course goes to check on him and then ghostface is standing over her he pulls out another knife and then we cut to the station and all the cops are having a pizza party it's a very random thing and then we hear one guy in the background go this isn't a pizza party it's just pizza it's like okay sure we see sydney sitting at kincaid's desk and she's looking through some books um like that are sitting on his desk and she seems really bored it's not only like sitting to be sitting around in these movies not doing anything as the third act is going on you know what i mean 
and she sees a file on his desk that has her name on it so she starts going through this file there's tons of new news articles about her there's highlighted bits there's tons and tons of different things dating back all the way to her mother's murder and even childhood pictures of sydney as she's looking through this her phone goes off and she answers it but as she's like hello who is this she's only hearing an echo back of herself so she tells whoever it is that they should call her back because the phone's being weird and then ghostface says i only hear you too sydney and sydney's like who is this and he says the question shouldn't be who am i the question is who i'm with and then sydney hears gail and dewey in the background and sydney tries to motion to the cops but ghostface is like don't get the cops involved otherwise i will kill them ghostface then says that he wants to talk to her in private so she goes back into the back office room that i'm assuming is wallace's office and ghostface tells her that she should come to john milton's house she needs to come alone and we hear doing it in the background telling her not to come ghostface convinces her by saying he killed her mother and he's like don't you want to know don't you want to know who actually killed your mom um she'd be happy to know we're finally going to be together and so she takes detective i'm assuming detective wallace's um gun she like goes through his desk in that office she takes his car keys and then looks through the drawers and ends up finding a gun and so she takes that as well Cindy gets to John Milton's house and Ghostface calls her. She's like by the pool. She sees Tyson's dead body and there's this like um, metal detector wand on the ground. And so Ghostface calls and it's like, use it. I like, you know, front and back, check everything. I want to know you don't have anything on you. So of course the um, Greek letter necklace goes off and then she's got a little gun in her boot. So Ghostface tells her to throw it in the pool she does and then she wants to know where gail and dewey are and he said come inside like join the party and she can see dewey a little bit tied to this chair from outside and so she goes in she sees where both of them are cindy's still on the phone and she goes in and she tries to untie them and get them out of the chairs but of course ghostface comes up behind her smacks sydney and then she's like on the ground and then he goes to stab sydney and then sydney pulls a little gun that she found in wallace's desk out from a different boot and shoots ghostface like five or six times and he kind of falls down in the hallway she starts untying gail but gail notices that ghostface is now gone so he picks up the gun again and then we see kincaid come around the corner like near where ghostface was they're both holding weapons at each other and kincaid's like i heard shots and i see that tyson's dead and then sydney asks what he's doing here and kincaid's like i heard there was a party tonight so i thought i should you know check out the third act celebration and all that then she asks where wallace is and kincaid looks like kind of evil in this scene like he looks a little unhinged and then he like puts his hands up and he's like look miss prescott i'm just here to help put the gun down and he like puts his gun away and so she slowly starts lowering the gun and then ghostface comes up behind her kincaid goes to push her out of the way and ends up taking the knife that was meant for sydney kincaid and ghostface start struggling and kincaid's trying really hard sydney when she was pushed out of the way by Kincaid. She hits her head on, I think it's the chair that Dewey is tied up to. And so she's a little disoriented now and is having a hard time, like, rising up to, you know, like, either untie Gail or Dewey and or help Kincaid. 
Gail and Dewey are trying to rouse Sydney. They're like, just shoot Ghostface. She fires one last shot, but it misses as she's like trying to, you know, regain her uh, footing and stuff after being hit in the head. And now she's out of bullets. And so she tells Ghostface, she's like, if you want me, motherfucker, come and get me. And then she takes off. Her and Ghostface are running through the house. Sydney locks herself in this like large library slash study room, I guess you could say. And it's full of bookcases. And Sydney sees light coming from under one of the bookcases. So she knows it's like a secret door. So she starts just pulling books off of this bookcase so that she can get through because Ghostface is trying to get through the, the locked door and is trying to break it down. So she gets through this bookcase. There's a lock on the door. She locks it. And then we see that she's made her way into John Milton's private viewing room. There's a large screen, all of these couches. And then we see that there's a projector going and video of Maureen Prescott. Maureen's voice is asking Sydney if she's missed her and she's so happy. And then we see the body bag that attacked Sydney while she was on the set. And the person takes the body bag off. And of course it's Ghostface. Sydney goes to leave through the door that she came in, like the bookcase door. And then Ghostface holds up this remote and like clicks a button and these like big electronic locks lock the door in place. So she can't just unlock it and leave. Ghostface is like, you're not going anywhere. And now you're stuck spending time with me and mother. We see that Ghostface had a bulletproof vest on and Sydney wants to know who Ghostface is. And he says that he's her other half. Ghostface says that four years ago, he tracked down Maureen Prescott, knocked on her door and thought that she would welcome him with open arms. But Maureen said, go away. She doesn't want him. And we find out that Roman is Sydney's half brother. As he takes off the Ghostface mask, Sydney, of course, has no idea who this man is. And Roman admits that when Maureen's door slammed in his face, she said, Rena's dead. So you're not my child. And Roman was like, bet. Roman explains that he was able to convince Billy and Stu to kill Maureen after he showed Billy some of the video of Billy's dad meeting Maureen at a hotel. Roman says that he's a director and that's what he does. He's like, so I just directed the boys and they followed it so easily. Roman talks about how he's mad that then they created the movie around what happened with Sydney and Sydney's still the star. Like he didn't get the mom. He didn't get the fame. Um, Sydney's the victim, Sydney's the main character, and Roman still doesn't get his flowers, essentially, for being Maureen's child, which is all he wanted to be in the first place, supposedly. Dewey's able to get out of his bindings, and he gets Gail out of hers. They go check on Kincaid. He's bleeding, but he seems, like, okay-ish. He gives Dewey his gun, and is like, find Sydney and end this. We go back to Sydney and Roman, and we find out that Roman has John Milton locked in a cupboard, and it's very similar, of course, to the first one where the plan is to flame Sydney's dad, Neil. Roman's planning to kill Milton and blame Sydney using the voice changer, and he's already left a voicemail on John Milton's phone, making it seem like Sydney is... Um, essentially taking revenge for her mother about all the sex parties that her mom went to that John Milton was involved in. Roman then takes the duct tape off of John Milton's mouth and he's like, Roman, I'll give you any movie you want, any picture, any budget, final cut, all of that. And then Roman says, I already got it as he slices John Milton's throat. Cindy calls Roman a spineless bastard, which I think is great. And Roman is like, no, sis, that would be you. You did all of it. You snapped because they were making another movie and you killed everyone. Roman says he's going to be the hero because he's going to be the sole survivor, which is always the, the thought process. 
he says that he's going to kill her with her own knife, essentially. Cindy's like, I've heard all this before. Like, you don't get to blame other people. You kill people because you choose to. And then I love it. She goes, why don't you take some fucking responsibility for once? And he goes, fuck you. And she yells, fuck you. And then they run at each other eventually. And this is when kind of the, the main battle ensues it's a pretty good fight scene of course sydney holds her own she's a great final girl dewey and gail are trying their hardest to figure out where the heck they are in the house and they're like busting down doors roman's getting a little bit of the upper hand on sydney but only for a minute she punches him in the face breaks a glass over his head she picks up a chair and goes to break it on him but he sweeps her legs out from under her he then kicks her in the face knees her in the head and then they're kind of and then just kind of starts kicking her finally dewey and gail are at the bookcase they're pulling books off and dewey's yelling to leave her alone he's like don't touch her i'll fucking kill you roman starts choking sydney and then dewey goes and takes these like tweezers and stuffs them in the wall socket causing the lights to go out and like busting a fuse essentially and then we hear kincaid at the door that was locked um, from the inside not the bookcase door but the other door into this private screening room and kincaid is able to open the door and he sneaks his way in of course it's dark he has another smaller gun and he sees sydney on the floor but he gets focused on that and doesn't see that roman has come up behind him and so roman comes up behind kincaid and knocks him out then roman sees kincaid's gun and as sydney is getting up to go over to roman and kincaid roman grabs kincaid's smaller pistol and shoots sydney he then gets up and walks over to her and shoots her in the chest. We hear Gail and Dewey screaming. They're trying to find another way into the room. Roman closes the door that Kincaid has just came in and locked it and then is sitting there waiting. When Roman turns around, however, Sydney is gone. Of course, Roman's pissed, so he just starts tearing the room to pieces. He's throwing chairs. He's throwing tables. He's knocking furniture over. He's breaking everything he can see. And we see Sydney take this um, like bowl off of the bar that's in this room. And there's this little ice pick. And so she takes the ice pick out of this bowl. And then we see that Roman is trying to call Sydney's number to see like where she's at in the room. But Sydney's quicker and she ends up calling Roman, like doing a callback. Um like a redial is the word I'm looking for. Redials. And so we see that Ghostface is standing right in front of the bar. Of course, Sydney is right behind the bar. So as his phone and his hand starts ringing, Sydney jumps up from behind the bar and stabs Roman in like the shoulder, like neck area with this ice pick. Roman falls to the ground and he's like, I shot you. And then she pulls up her jacket and she's got an LAPD bulletproof vest on. And she's like, I guess we think alike. Roman then says, mother's dead and there's nothing you can do about it. I still got to make my movie. And Cindy says, yeah, stab three, right? And then she takes the ice pick and stabs him through the bulletproof vest into his heart. It's wild. At this point, Gail and Dewey bust their way in to check on Kincaid he's alive and of course they're shocked to see it was roman and then we see sydney take roman's hand and she stays with him while he passes i mean while she didn't know she had a brother she does stay with him in the end which is very interesting sydney gets up and goes to leave the room and dewey says careful sydney randy says the killer and these things are superhuman he wasn't superhuman he wasn't super at all but then roman does get up and it's a great jump scare because he just starts yelling and he's like running at them with this knife and dewey starts shooting him and sydney's like the head dewey you have to do the head the head because dewey just keeps repeatedly shooting him in the bulletproof vest and so finally sydney screaming like shoot him in the head hits 
Dewey's ears, and he shoots him in the head. Um, and so Roman is officially dead. We cut to later, and we're at Sydney's house in the hills, and she's walking with her dog. She seems happy. It's sunny outside. We see Gail and Dewey are there. And Dewey has a copy of Gail's book, The Woodsboro Murders, and he's asking her to sign it for him. And she's like, why? You hate this book. And he's like, come on for me. So she opens it and we see that there's an engagement ring inside. He's like carved out part of the book and there's a ring box. And she's like, are you sure you want to do this? And he says, yes. So those two are engaged. Happy for them. We cut back to Cindy and she's coming inside with her dog. She leaves the front gate on her property open. She doesn't arm the alarm system in her house. And then we see Kincaid come in and he's got his arm in a sling and he's made popcorn. He's like, come on, Cindy, we're going to watch a movie. So it's like a cute little double date. She asks what movie and he says, you'll have to come see. And then, yeah, she doesn't turn on the alarm. And as she's walking further into the house, the wind kind of kicks the door open like blows it open so it wasn't fully latched she looks at it smiles and then she turns and continues back into the living room because now of course she's not scared the end of scream three such a great close to like an original trilogy and we don't get the normal ghost face jump scare end card like we do in the first and second ones like uh, as the the credits are starting because this was supposed to be it and yeah, that is that is Scream 3. I love this franchise. I, again, sad that everything seems to be going the way it's going with it. Fuck Spyglass and all their bullshit. Um, yeah, so I hope that you enjoyed this episode. Happy 2024. Very excited to get into this year with all of you. We've got lots of great horror stuff on the horizon. Um, so excited for some of the films that are coming out this year. And I'm excited to share all of that with you as we go through these podcast breakdowns. Um, if you enjoyed today's episode, please feel free to like and follow wherever you listen. Uh, review, I'd greatly appreciate it. And if you want to see what I'm doing on socials, I have the podcast on social media at M Murder Movies. So that's M as in Massacre Murder Movies on Instagram and Twitter. And I hope everyone has a lovely day or night whenever they're listening to this. And remember to stay safe and stay spooky.